like, do you remember the toothbrush that when you brush your teeth, yeah. it would vibrate your teeth and play music? Oh, yeah. Huh. So weird. And it got preloaded with like Hannah Montana songs. <laughs> and you do that in the morning. You're just like slowly throughout the year, like, fuck you, Hannah Montana. <laughs> what a wild concept to like just throw out at, a, at like a pitch meeting. Just like, let's do this. All right. You, you throw, throw a little MP3 into the toothbrush. Mm. You, you can't download other songs. It's just an individual MP3, but it vibrates their teeth and plays the song. The kids are going to love it. <laughs> That's ooh, that's a great episode idea. Like God damn dumbest it. business ideas. God damn it, Richardson. Well, we're gonna be talking a lot about businesses today. Not that in a good true. way though. Mm. Are you excited? I am very excited. You could say this is one of my labors of love. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Captain America and I'm gonna teach you guys how to have fun at work. <laughs> Get to work, you slugs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like literally Uncle Sam is like do your job and stop complaining. Yeah, but or you'll un- get the fist. But, un- but Uncle Sam, I'm seven and my lungs are full of coal. <laughs> I thought you were supposed to be the creepy uncle, not the mean one. <laughs> well, Jimmy, I'm a little bit of both. Oh, boy. How did I take all your money? <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Gems of History podcast. <laughs> I'm, oh, I always wonder when you're going like, to bring us in. <laughs> it's never, my favorite thing. It's always a, a toss-up. So here we are. Was that a good intro for a podcast? Who knows? But we're here. At the Gems of History podcast, I'm Jacob Shop. Ev- Evan Roosh is here with me. Hello, at Wadevsky's on Twitter. <laughs> at Jacob from Wisco on Twitter. I keep forgetting that we changed up the entire format to do plugs right away. Not gonna lie, uh, it's a little A-B testing that's marketing for you, and haven't seen too much of a difference, so if you're listening, go follow us on Twitter, unless you're already there. <laughs> I thought you were gonna <laughs> say, if you're listening, go fuck yourself. <laughs> I don't think I... <laughs> Went very, that's what that's it, what the best podcast do. They tell their listeners to go F off. You you went with a different word for, that started with F. <laughs> Keeping it clean for the kids. But anyway, since we are great at planning and know exactly what we're doing around here, we decided to do an episode about Labor Day a week after Labor Day <laughs> instead of on Labor Day. Record yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> just hey, when when the rest of the industry zigs, we zag. And this is coming out a day after 9-11, so Missed that one by a day. <laughs> the only time we've ever been pre- like relatively spot on with these episode ideas, I think, was like the moon landing in the yeah. space race, where it just happened to fall in the same-ish time. But this means that next year, 9-11 is going to be on a Monday, which is a release day, so I feel like we're kind of morally obligated to do it. So that's going to be a depressing one. Do, do people not know about 9-11? I'm <laughs> <laughs> <I did. laughs> I'm constantly told, being told to remember it. So. I, yeah, we're told never to forget, but what if we never knew in the first place? How could we remember? That's so trippy. <laughs> but, but anyways, we're not talking about 9-11 today. What a wild episode so far. Uh, yeah, so as I mentioned, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the history behind Labor Day and a few of the violent conflicts that arose with the labor unions in the early days of labor unions in the United States and kind of how the fight for the eight-hour workday, the fight for better working conditions, all that, how that culminated into what is considered the second American Civil War. (laughs) I mean, in a way, yeah, totally. Like, working conditions were not great, folks. Yeah. They were 
very bad. Like, I made the joke about a seven-year-old filled with, like, black tar oh, and, and his lungs. No, that's not even, like, wrong. <laughs> that's, like, that is just straight up what it was. Yeah. And, and they this, got paid a gumball. This is, like, after the whole, like, FDA revolution where it was, like, changing up the factory settings where it was at the factory the settings. Factory settings. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the default. This isn't what you reset to. But like the uh, factory life and factory conditions where they were just throwing anything and everything into food and stuff like that. This is after that. That was kind of like mid to late 1800s. This is more so getting into the 1900s. And like when unions started forming, especially in mining companies, which is the main aspect of what we'll talk about today. And people really just started to realize that we're getting taken advantage of hardcore and we want change. Right. And then they finally came for like the rich, rich people. Like you thought today's rich, rich were rich, rich. And they are. Which they definitely are. But back in the day, rich, rich was rich, 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 rich. I mean, there's a reason why the Rockefeller name is still like very tied with everything to do with money. (laughs) Yeah, they literally own everything. (laughs) So yeah, that's a little bit what we'll be getting into today. And it's kind of just our way of educating everyone on why Labor Day in America is celebrated. And we'll also talk about another holiday that's kind of the International Labor Day. That mm-hmm. is not as it's not officially recognized in the U.S. because we have that's about right Labor Day, but it is internationally recognized in quite a few countries. So because it sounds too much like the metric system, that and is- we will not have any of that. <laughs> so, so we'll be covering all that today. Are you ready, Evan? I am very ready. Are you ready, Jacob? I am so ready, and this is kind of timely for you too because you just started a new job. So I did, I did, and I did not have to do anything remotely close to a civil war to achieve it. It's nope. Just went through ZipRecruiter. How times have changed. <laughs> it's a little different now. Internet warfare. <laughs> right. Cybercrime. So at the tail end of the 19th century and into the 20th, labor reforms were a major point of contention between business owners and laborers because hours were long, working conditions were poor, and specifically in the profession of mining, employees were basically indentured servants to the company. After Labor Day parades began to take root in cities across the United States, things began to change, but only where governments actually enforced those new reforms. And in a few places across the nation, riots and protests broke out and violence became more or less the norm. The history of the labor movements for United States citizens is not a peaceful one, but rather quite violent and turbulent. And we're going to focus on a few key moments to highlight some of these brave people who really did put their lives and their livelihoods on the line to change things. Right. I mean, these people truly changed the way the entire economy worked at the time, how they would receive wages and how we receive our wages today. Even if you still don't, it's, there's still, of course, you know, a lot of labor disputes now regarding a whole bunch of different industries and all. Yeah. And what's not, but, could be worse. It could be, but we also haven't had a like minimum wage change in like 50 years that and everything true. else has gone up in price. So maybe we should start thinking about stuff like that for today. But <laughs> that's not what we're here to talk about. So. We can. I mean. <laughs> I mean, maybe later. I'm all for people getting more money. So overall, why do we celebrate Labor Day? Well, 
as I mentioned in the little prologue, labor conditions weren't great in the 1800s, especially in the food industry in the early 1800s. And then a book that you might have heard of, I believe it's called The Jungle, came out yes. by uh, Sinclair. And then everything kind of came to the forefront and people pushed for change. And then eventually FDA was formed and did good at first and then sucked after that. But industrialism in general was growing so rapidly and had basically no regulation after the Civil War with new jobs, but also plenty of new issues to address with all of those new jobs. And on top of that, immigration numbers were skyrocketing from Eastern and Southern Europe, which changed the landscape of employment for basically forever in the United States. Oh, yeah. All these big companies, the would-be Rockefellers, if you will, saw truly what they believed to be free labor and all these immigrants coming in who barely barely were just like they were literally just given a new name at ellis island and then shipped in and like hey pal you need a job (laughs) we'll pay you some money (laughs) we will give you a slice of bread you want butter you'll have to pay us at our company store yeah right so in 1893 a depression began in the united states and a lot of the new jobs that were created ceased to exist quite quickly and unemployment rose which pushed people into whatever new industrial avenue they could find. But these enterprises, such as iron, steel, and oil, for example, were now forcing people into wage-based labor instead of the agricultural lifestyles that they were used to. And many families needed multiple family members to work to support the family. Which meant that children were made to work in the same conditions as adults, And many people slogged through 12-hour days for seven days a week and barely made enough to get by. Not a fun lifestyle. No. like Especially when you are transitioning from being farm-based or agricultural-based, where you can take some of what you're producing to support yourself. Now you have to pay, or you get paid a wage versus getting paid in food or whatever you need. Isn't that crazy just how different that, like, that, shift is now like that compared to today where you actually had to grow your own crops yeah now it's like i have nothing i have literally nothing to eat like you could make that complaint and there's literally a thousand stores oh so many things in my fridge that i could eat that i just i'm not in the mood for right <laughs> I, I very much realize how good i have it today right but i mean it's just like to your point the general shift of i can provide for myself to now i am now i am now relying on someone else to like give me something so I can go buy well, and how something. quickly it happened. Because oh, you, yeah. you think industrialization pretty much took place Civil War and after. So by yeah. in those 40 years between then and 1900, the amount of companies that opened up for oil and steel and iron, ridiculous amount of new jobs and new industries. But you, when you're popping up new industries like that so quickly, there's not a lot of time to figure out how to regulate it or make it safe. Right, I mean, and to the agriculture point of view, post-Civil War, a lot of the crops were pretty much decimated. For example, Sherman's march through the South, he ran a train, like he did total war, like he ran a train through the entire, like he didn't just go after soldiers, he went after everyone, raised crops, made sure like nothing else could be grown on that land. So I mean, that just forces more people to look for new places to work. Exactly. But a decade before that depression hit in 93, change had already begun. On September 5th, 1882, in New York City, the first Labor Day parade was held. 
An article from the New York Times reported that 10,000 people marched in an organized manner with smiles on their faces. That's so wholesome. It For is... whatever reason, they're just all wearing their like Sunday finest. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it said everyone was wearing their nicest clothes. Everyone had their mustaches groomed. Ooh. And of course, it's mostly men marching in this parade. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> But it's better than nothing, I suppose. But despite the cheerful attitudes, many people were risking their jobs by marching that day. But they held signs calling for, quote, less work and more pay, primarily changing to an eight-hour workday is their main complaint. This movement grew, and half a decade later, New York officially recognized Labor Day as a holiday. As the Times wrote, quote, the barrooms were never more resplendent. Liquidly, the first legal celebration of Labor Day may go down in history as an unqualified success. I honestly think about that all the time. Like, what were probably the biggest celebrations, like, in history? This had to be one of them, just with how packed the bars had to oh, be yeah. for these 10,000 people just immediately just going straight to the bars. Right, exactly. And around the same time, unions began to form for craftsmen and unskilled workers alike, which was huge because it was a good stepping stone for the workers to organize and put their say out in the forefront at a company. Because before this, if you're trying to get any anything up to the, the company owners or the, whoever's running the company, good luck. <laughs> right, and this also gave birth to labor union publications because mainstream media were very anti-union for the most part. I guess I shouldn't say for the most part, but in some cases, and they were, you know, portraying a lot different version of labor unions than was truly going on, I would say. So a lot of these different labor unions started creating their, don't want to say the word manifesto, but their own publications, their own newspapers to spread the word to their own union members, as well as to like, educate on a broader sense, what they're really trying to accomplish here. Yeah, and a lot of them were sending like questionnaires to yeah. the heads of companies to ask, like, would you be open to changing to eight-hour workdays and maybe doing some other things to make working conditions better? So it's they were doing it in a way that wasn't upfront and aggressive. They were really trying to just put ideas in people's heads. Right. One specific event pushed political action uh, to recognize Labor Day as a national holiday instead of just a state by state holiday. And that was the Pullman strike. So in summary, the Pullman Palace Car Company in the Midwest, which was a train car company, lowered its wages while keeping the rent prices in their company town the same. Pullman. Bold move. <laughs> Pullman, the name of the company town, which was, is now part of Chicago, was obviously full of angry workers who took to the streets after employee complaints were met with firings. Workers, joined by others from the American Railway Union, refused to handle the rail cars from Pullman and essentially brought freight and passenger traffic in Chicago to a halt. So think about, I believe it was last year when up in Canada, there was a big strike for the trucking companies, I believe. Right, and yeah. pretty much shut down traffic and cost a bunch of car companies like millions of dollars in a couple hours. Yeah. Think about that for back in the 1890s. Tens of thousands of people walked off their jobs and began to strike, and some crowds were actually fired upon by authorities. In the midst of the crisis going on, Grover Cleveland officially declared Labor Day a national holiday on June 28, 1894, which was a huge stepping stone. Oh my gosh, yeah. Like an actual presidential recognition for 
these different labor unions. I mean, most people say that he did it just to keep the support of the blue collar workers, but hey, it's done. It's better than nothing. <laughs> hey, I shout out Grover Cleveland. Whatever Loved having the, job the day done. off on Monday. <laughs> But before the Pullman incident, many other incidents paved the way for labor reforms and established another holiday. On May 1st, 1884, labor movement officials called for workers to organize and protest for their eight-hour workday. This protest birthed the, national the international holiday, now known as May Day, and although it isn't an official holiday in the United States, it is celebrated around the world. But a couple years after May Day's first gathering, one of the most controversial and violent interactions of the early labor movement occurs, which is now known as the Haymarket Affair. In a quote from William J. Edelman, one of the founders of the Illinois Labor History Society, he states how important the Haymarket Affair really was for the history of labor reform. And I'm going to read this quote now from him. No single event has influenced the history of labor in Illinois, the United States, and even the world more than the Chicago Haymarket Affair. It began with a rally on May 4, 1886, but the consequences are still being felt today. Although the rally is included in American history textbooks, very few present the event accurately or point out its significance. Yeah, that's literally like a bold word in American history yeah. books that you may, I mean, I most certainly do not remember it from, no, exactly. from learning about it in history class. And it is quite the event, so it should definitely be something that's more than a skim in a history book, in my opinion. So when the Haymarket Affair took place in 1886, it had been nearly two decades since Illinois had passed a law that was supposed to establish and defend an eight-hour workday for its employees. But the problem was that the law wasn't enforced, and employers even forced workers to sign waivers dismissing the law as a condition of their employment. The organized labor movement had been voicing their discontent with the current labor conditions with slogans and songs such as, quote, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what we will. I mean, it's, they're not demanding a lot. <laughs> no. I mean, they're working 12 hours for the entire week, I think eight hours is reasonable. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, we'd like eight hours to just chill for a little bit. Yeah. I want to just, like, have family time, you know, and not family time when we're working next to each other in the mine together. Yeah, me and Timmy need some time off the clock to have a catch. Like. <laughs> Lucy and Albert Parsons became the de facto leaders of the demonstrations being held. Lucy was a former slave in Texas, and Albert was a printer and one of the founders of the Chicago Trades and Labor Assembly, among being involved with other labor groups and publications. So it's kind of a cool couple taking charge here. Uh, former slave, and then also just a printer who decided, I can do better here. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Like, really dedicating their entire lives and relationship to it. Yeah. On May 2nd, 1886, Albert went to Ohio to help organize a rally while Lucy led another peaceful march of some 35,000 workers in Chicago. That's so nuts. Like, think about that at the time in 1886. 35,000 people, and that's all like word of mouth. Yeah. And or like, like this flyer pamphlet. And not only that 35,000 people are organized and protesting peacefully, but they're being led by a former slave. Right. Which is kind of crazy for 1886 America. Chicago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that that was pretty cool. Yeah. But the next day on May 3rd, Chicago police broke the peace by attacking and killing workers who were picketing at the McCormick Reaper plant. 
So very quickly, things are turning into a bad situation. After this happened, a protest meeting was planned at Haymarket Square on the 4th of May. The pro-labor mayor of Chicago actually gave permission for the meeting as well. So this wasn't just a random organization of people. This was a planned and approved event for people to do. Do we know why the cops started uh, doing cop things or was just like... Cops be copping. Probably cops be copping. They saw people in a group with signs and they were yelling and said, all right. That's enough of that. (laughs) That's enough of that for sure. So although this meeting was supported, many of the speakers assigned to the gathering failed to appear and the meeting was delayed for nearly an hour. Fewer than 2,500 people attended in total, about a tenth of the expected turnout. So not a generally successful meeting so far no going from (laughs) thirty-five thousand to 2500 yeah two substitute speakers rushed over to fill in one of which was albert parsons himself having just returned from ohio and towards the end of the meeting only about 200 or so people remained with parsons having left because it was beginning to rain and instead of the meeting ending peacefully as it had been going the whole time The group was met by 176 policemen carrying Winchester rifles. The second speaker, a Methodist preacher named Samuel Fielden, was speaking to the small crowd when someone, impossible to know who even to this day, threw the first ever dynamite bomb used in peacetime history in the United States. That is not a sentence I expected to hear today. (laughs) Yeah. So this is why this is such an important event in more than one way. Oh my gosh, yeah. Like a dynamite bomb. Yeah, not only has it like gotten to the point of police possible police brutality on the uh, McCormick plant earlier, but now we've got the first dynamite bomb getting thrown and getting thrown at police in a crowded area of other people. What a moment in history. Now you know the answer to that random trivia question. Where was the first (laughs) dino bomb? Yep. The policemen panicked and began to fire into the darkness, with some of them hitting their own men, and by the end, seven policemen had died, only one of which was a direct result of the bomb. In addition to the policemen, four of the workers at the meeting also died. So 11 total people. Immediately following these events, martial law was declared across the nation. Anti-labor governments used the events in Chicago to round up and crush the union movements in their areas while Chicago movement leaders were corralled and accused of being the perpetrators of throwing the bomb. Among those arrested included Samuel Fielden and Albert Parsons, both who had spoken at the meeting, among six other men. One man, accused of being the one who physically threw the bomb, was arrested despite having witnesses proving that he was over a mile away at the time of the attack. Yeah, at this point they're truly just rounding up. The key figures, I would say. There's a reason why this is called a giant sham trial. Yeah. Thus ensued a two-month-long trial, with the Chicago Tribune even offering the jury bribes to find the eight men guilty. Hmm. That's about right. (laughs) Mainstream media, Mainstream media, huh? The Haymarket Eight, as the men would come to be known, would all be found guilty on August 20th, 1886. Seven of the men were to be hanged, and one was sentenced to 15 years of hard labor. Louis Ling, the one accused of throwing the bomb, was expecting a pardon the day before the execution, but that morning he was found with his head blown apart by a dynamite cap. 
a mysterious situation to this day. Zoinks, that is quite the way to go. Yeah, especially after you had a air, pretty much airtight alibi proving that you could not have done it. Right, like plur, like witnesses, so multiple people saying you were a mile away. <sighs> Tragic story for that guy. Yeah. Four of the other men, including Albert Parsons, were hung the next day. Six years later, the three men still alive were officially pardoned, and the current governor condemned the judicial system for allowing such a farce trial to go unpunished. After all, many of those who were tried were not even at the Haymarket meeting. They were simply arrested without warrants because they were union organizers. And now, May Day is officially recognized around the world to commemorate the Haymarket affair and those who died unjustly after the event. But after the turn of the century, the fight continued for workers all over America. Yeah, that is quite the story. I mean, eight men, completely with no reason, brought into trials, took zero time to find them guilty. Yeah, and, and then, I mean, Albert Parsons wasn't there anymore. He just organized the event. Right. Samuel Fielden was actively speaking when the event happened. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how they would have suspected them of being involved in a random dynamite bomb. Right. Did, like, did, he, just, did he hide the bomb underneath his robes? Like <laughs> yeah, his pastor right. robes? Yeah, his Methodist preacher robes. Yeah, right. He's just always carrying. No, I keep that thing on me. I <laughs> keep that dino bomb wrapped <laughs> up like an old-time cartoon evil man. Aren't you ever worried that's just going to go off? Nah. I have a permit. <laughs> So in the summer of 1913, United Mine Workers in Colorado organized 11,000 coal miners who worked under Rockefeller-owned companies to strike. After they had been stonewalled in their fight for better wages and a shorter workday, the miners began to protest. But the way things worked in mine towns, many were living in company-owned housing, in company towns, paying for their goods at company-owned stores with unregulated currency known as scrip. It's the currency that always always gets me. Yeah. They, I mean, like it's like one shoot buck. Like if you're a fan of The Office. Literally. Instead of like an actual piece of U.S. dollar. So you can't, you truly can't go out and like buy a house on no. this stuff. Like it's not accepted anywhere except the town. Yeah. And you're paying rent to live in the house that you are now living in, in a company town that is owned by the company that you're working for. So you're getting unregulated currency. So Scrip is, un- and basically a wage that people were getting paid that could only be used in the company stores. So you're getting paid to put your money back into the company's pocket, pretty much. And you have no way to move. Like, that's... You truly are basically like an indentured servant. Yeah, exactly. And that indentured servitude meant that the company had the ability to offset pay increases by increasing rent or the prices of goods in company stores. It also meant that once these workers went on strike... They were quickly evicted from their company-owned homes. So you can clearly see how much power the people have versus the company here. Yeah, this is big business doing big business things. After being evicted, many workers set up tent cities around the mines instead, the largest of which was being known as the Ludlow Camp. In response, the Rockefellers hired a quote-unquote detective agency, which was basically a bunch of outlaws and thugs, who would go into the tent cities and raid the camps with shotguns and rifles. These are very similar to Pinkertons, right, if I'm yeah. not mistaken? Yep. Yeah. And by November of 1913, Rockefellers even paid the Colorado National Guard to come in and raid and shoot the tent cities. Like, just think about that. They paid off 
a branch of the military to come and light up this tent city. Isn't it fun having monopolies, Evan? Like, that was just a thing that was able to happen. That's how much money these people truly had. That's nuts. Money and influence. Yeah, oil, coal, yeah, railroads. <laughs> Honestly insane how much money you can make off those things when no one else knows how. Right, yeah. But despite this, the strikes continued on, and by April, John D. Rockefeller Jr. was fed up and went before Congress. When asked if he would stand by his anti-union principles, even if all of his property and employees would be lost or killed, John said, quote, It is a great principle. End quote. John D. Rockefeller, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Sir, would you mind if all the land burned and all the people died? You gonna stick to your guns on that one? It's a good gun. <laughs> it's a good gun. So he basically was not going to let the Union men have their way no matter what. And here's where we get to 420 Colorado, bro. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. The first 420 in Colorado. Things got blazing, but not in a good way. Oh, man. Yeah, it's not in a fun hell yeah, brother kind of way. So, four militiamen pointed their guns at some of the miners, and eventually shots were exchanged in a classic who's who for the first shot. After an all-day gunfight, the National Guardsmen came into the Ludlow camp and set fire to it. Thirteen residents were shot and killed trying to flee, while others inside the camp burned to death. Accounts state that a woman's infirmary was found, and four women and eleven children fled and hid in a pit to try and escape the flames and the gunfire. Of the 15 who hid, only two of the women survived. One of them, named Mary Petrucci, recalled, quote, I came out of the hole. There was light and lots of smoke. I wandered amongst the ashes until a priest found me. I couldn't feel anything. I was cold. End quote. Ugh, that is so sad. Literally getting a paid militia to go and burn entire colony of people pretty much not a good not even the a paid militia well it was the national guard again correct but that's basically a paid militia at this point <laughs> like, oh yeah i guess yeah army branches were a lot different back then. yeah uh, so i'm it's just shows you how much you can do with money <laughs> that is nuts and, and a bunch of oil <laughs> and they were just like we would like some money we'd please. like food please we would like to buy our own pieces of land and geez just because they didn't want to live in company towns. Yeah, that is unbelievable. In total, around 25 people died in the Ludlow Massacre, with 66 dying in total since the beginning of the strike. But despite this, no militiamen or private detectives were charged. Public outrage cried out against unchecked corporate power, and congressmen worried that these labor issues could tear society apart if they aren't addressed. John D. Rockefeller Jr. released a statement after the fact, denying that there was any massacre, saying it was a, the tent colony's fault and the militiamen were fighting for their lives and were in no way responsible. This armed militia was fighting for their lives against these people in tents, huh? Yeah, apparently. They were really uh. up against the ropes. But despite his insistence that nothing wrong had happened, labor laws began to tighten up and were enforced more strictly. It was another good step, but there was one more battle that needed to happen first, which is what some historians consider to be nearly the Second American Civil War. Kind of a big deal. 
Yeah, and we just do not talk about the second one. No, not at all. I hate to kind of ignore that one. Uh, so I forgot. I put all of my sources for each section of this behind the title of the, the section, and I forgot to mention them. So the Haymarket Affair I got from Illinois Labor History Society's website. It was like a very good write-up in there. Uh, the Ludlow stuff came from the New Yorker and History.com. A lot of like New York Times and the New Yorker articles that covered a lot of this stuff very well. I guess it makes sense. This was kind of born in New York. Yeah. At least in the United States. And then for this section, which we'll be covering the Battle of Blair Mountain, uh, my sources were a good write-up in the Smithsonian and a New York Times article. So, good job, New York, uncovering the labor wars of America. <laughs> I guess and now it's the dirtiest city in, <laughs> yeah. in the world. I guess it's good where the uh, like center of our economy is held. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Over half a decade after Ludlow, mining employees in the West Virginian Appalachia region were still struggling the same way the Colorado miners had been. Working conditions were dangerous. Armed guards patrolled to keep workers in line and they were paid only in company scrip. Disgruntled employees were already beginning to voice their unhappiness when one of their supporters was killed. Police Chief Sid Hatfield, who was in charge of the town of Matawan in West Virginia, was a supporter and friend to the workers there. He would walk them home if they were too drunk, and he even stood by miners in a shootout in 1920 against Baldwin Feltz detectives. So, Baldwin's Feltz is another detective agency that is very dubious in this time period. They really throw the word detective out quite yeah. uh, loosely. This is no Sherlock Holmes, no, people. It was pretty much a vigilante group of armed civilians that just got labeled detectives and could do what they want with that power. Just picturing Batman with guns. <laughs> it's pretty much like... Where did all your script go? <laughs> He's Why, holding, where's um, all the coal going? <laughs> holding a Winchester rifle to this just poor, poor, poor worker. The, there's like a minor Riddler that keeps like tripping him up at every turn. <laughs> keeps on bamboozling Rockefeller. <laughs> <laughs> but Sid, Sid Hatfield's attitude towards the miners made him a target for the anti-union companies in the area and he was eventually gunned down by these Baldwin Feltz agents in front of the courthouse on August 1st, 1921, after Hatfield was acquitted of any charges following the 1920 shootout. This was the spark that ignited the mine workers to march together to force their will upon local officials. After organizing, the miners set up a system, swearing each other to secrecy over who was leading the uprising in order to avoid any legal trouble. They didn't have a designated general, but they were an army. An army 10,000 strong. That's a lot of people. A little intimidating, I'd say. That's a legit army. Yeah. Like, that and, is, wow. And, like, everyone that has done history research on this calls them an army. So yeah. they were armed and ready to go. Right. Who was funding this? <laughs> they just used the weapons that they had at home, pretty much. Yeah, yeah so, that's true. It's a very DIY project, you know? Yeah. They went on Etsy to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, bring your own Glock. <laughs> <laughs> BYOG, yeah. Yeah. And this army of men fought unsegregated. In one instance, miners held cafeteria workers at gunpoint until they agreed to serve the black and white workers in the same room, which is pretty cool. 
That is very progressive. But most people say, like, I'm not going to say that this was like sunshines and rainbows. It wasn't like they were all like very buddy buddy with each other. They yeah. just knew that the only way this was going to work is if they did it together. So, yeah. It's, uh, it's, yeah, that's, that's not going to too far ahead of ourselves. Like, it's a good step. Yeah. But it's not like it's just a revolutionary idea. At this right. Point. Like, snaps for them. It's very neat. But we do have some pretty cool anti-segregation things going on in the story with Lucy Parsons and now we've got this group fighting together. So yeah. it is kind of cool to see that it's already beginning to intermingle. Absolutely. Although living conditions for strikers were grim, they didn't stop. The workers fought against police as they marched towards Mingo County, exchanging gunfire in mountain passes and wooded areas. Anti-labor sheriff Don Chafin sided with local coal companies, surprise, surprise, and organized forces to restore order. And Don Chafin's kind of a bastard in the story. Makes sense. Yeah. Thousands of workers approached the forces of anti-union organizers. Deputized townspeople and business people who opposed unions even stood against the workers. So they're literally gi- giving civilians the authority to just go up and start attacking these groups of people if they want to. Well, they were probably pitched that these workers, like these dirty, coal-covered workers, were just coming to take their They're own They're going to take their jobs! Essentially, yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting to see how quickly everyone starts to turn against these people. Skirmishes between police and miners began to spread rumors of large numbers of miners killed by officials, even though only two had died in one raid in one example. So it's getting very much blown out of proportion very quickly, mm-hmm. spreading through the ranks of the miners, kind of just whipping everyone into more of a frenzy than they already were. Yeah, I mean, this happens all the time throughout history, just only a few people. I mean, the Boston Massacre, like, I don't even remember how many people died, but not enough to qualify for a massacre. I know, we. I have learned that in America, we throw around the word massacre very loosely. Oh, we love... I don't want to say that, but we, we love we, a good massacre. <laughs> we spin. We know how to spin a good massacre. I mean, the Mountains Meadow massacre that we've covered. That yeah. one was pretty bad because it was like a deliberate oh, like yeah. slaughter of a group of people. Yeah, but then you'll hear about like massacres in like Europe and Russia, where it's like, oh, forty thousand people died in this massacre. It's like, oh, yeah, we had eleven people die in the Haymarket affair. So You're right. <laughs> match that. Mm-hmm. No one can out-publicize or out-dramatize the Americas, (laughs) baby. We are a very dramatic country, to say the least. Union organizers were in contact with military officials who urged the labor leaders to talk the miners down before they were wiped out. By the last few days of August, thousands of coal miners had agreed to stand down and were waiting for transport home. So, things have simmered quite a bit. They have come to terms like, Okay, if we stop here, we're not going to have to fight a literal national army. Yeah. <laughs> so this might be a good time to sit down and think about what right, we're doing. Right, like heat check really quick. But in the meantime, our good old resident asshole Don Chafin organized a raid of 290 policemen to go into the miner camps and issue warrants. But the miners ambushed the officers, and word spread that men, women, and children were killed by the officers. So more 
rumors getting spread and blowing this out of proportion. Mm-hmm. So this meant that angry miners who were planning to return home now rejoined the fight. And now the official battle moved to take place near Blair Mountain. Instead of heeding the warnings that the army would be on its way in a couple days' time, a group of 70 miners crept up the mountain and found three drunk deputies. <laughs> and whenever I read that, I just imagine the, the old prospector skit from SNL with Will Ferrell, <laughs> where his yeah. pots are just clanging around <laughs> yeah. and I'm trying to imagine them creep up the mountain. Military. Like, clink, yeah. clink, 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 clink. <laughs> be quiet. They'll never hear us. They'll never hear us. Two of the deputies and one miner wound up dead in the fighting, and then the battle truly began. Police forces were entrenched with machine guns. Sheesh! Oh my god. Oh <laughs> yeah, my god. This th- things get very serious. <laughs> Police forces were in the pillbox <laughs> defending <laughs> Omaha Beach. Yeah. Jesus H. They were getting ready for World War One and a half, you know? Apparently. <laughs> because this is after World War I, so I mean... Yeah. They know how to fight in trenches. Miners attempted to flank the positions, but were always forced back by rifle and machine gun fire. In addition, three private planes were hired and dropped homemade nail bombs and gas bombs on the miners, but luckily they all missed their targets. <laughs> gas gas bombs? Like <laughs> Yeah, they probably they had mustard gas they just left had... over, I guess. So Yeah, oh, I mean. <laughs> Might as well use it somewhere. <laughs> use it on our civilians. I mean, it just goes to waste. Well, I mean, why yeah, not? It's just sitting there. We can't use the mustard for condiments anymore, their so we might as well full- use it for death. <laughs> their lungs are full of, like, coal anyway. I mean, what's a little mustard gas It actually makes them stronger when it mixes. It's actually a secret, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then was birthed coal, man. The secret I ingredient heard. to super soldiers isn't... Like genetically fusing monkeys and men together. It's just coal and mustard gas in your lungs. Great. Some scientists that, because yeah, we're a very big, I guarantee a lot of scientists listen oh, to this hundreds podcast. Of them, yeah. They're going to hear that and be like, Eureka. <laughs> and they've never stopped us from saying anything wrong. So this is on you guys too, scientists. I mean, no one's ever told us that we're wrong. That this is far. true. So I guess we've never been wrong. Hmm. So whatever. And that's <laughs> what we call delusion. <laughs> The miners eventually broke through in one location and got within six miles of their goal, but ultimately lacked enough communication and couldn't move forward. And their goal at this point was to get to Logan County instead of Mingo County. Mingo County was kind of where the seat heads were for the companies that they worked for, and they wanted to go confront them directly. But Logan County was where Don Chaffin was. So everyone's Mm. like, let's go get this bastard. Go get Don, Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. By September 1st, 1921, the police and deputies were running extremely low on ammunition. However, this was also the day that the federal troops stated they would move into the area to put down the uprising. So, eventually, planes started flying overhead, signaling that the, militia- the federal army was coming into town, and the miner said, maybe we can't go any further then. Yeah, I don't want to go up against, like, Uncle Sam, Uncle Sam. But most people do say that if this hadn't happened, the miners had a good chance of getting through and getting to the place they wanted to go. That is so interesting to go down the rabbit hole of what if. Yeah. It, like, the alter- what would have happened. Alternative history, yeah. E. Because most of these guys were World War One veterans. Yeah. So... First of all, we're treating them terribly when they get back from the war. Oh, my God. But yeah. second of all, they're just like, 
we know how to fight. Don't like take it lightly, lightly that we're here. Mm-hmm. Throughout the next couple of days, a ceasefire was agreed upon, and miners either hid or surrendered their weapons. As I said, many of these miners were veterans themselves, just didn't want to fight against the government that they had just fought overseas for. Their goal wasn't war against the country, it was to fight against the coal companies. But the army took control of the area quickly, and the Battle of Blair Mountain was over. An estimated one million rounds of ammunition were fired, and the death toll estimates range from 20 to 100, so kind of a broad spectrum. But the most common estimate of minor fatalities is 16. Mm. A million rounds of ammunition? (laughs) I know. I thought that was going to be a lot bigger number of fatalities. Only 100 at most died. But you're thinking about it. Most guys are hiding in the hills. They're hiding in trenches. They're shooting pot shots at each other from trees. It's not like it's... Yeah, it's not like a shoot to kill situation. A lot of the time, it's probably just like, we're trying to march somewhere. We want to get there safely. So if you start firing at us, we will fire back. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Labor leaders were cleared of charges after the insurrection, and miners were freed from jail because most of the court cases were going in miners' favor, and a lot of the lawyers decided it's not worth my time to try and go the other way with it, so let's just not try and prosecute this at all, (laughs) which is, I guess, a good thing. Count your losses. The Battle of Blair Mountain was a major moment in what would come to be known as the Mine Wars. And the Mine Wars is the total of all of these things culminating together into the Mine Wars, but the Battle of Blair Mountain is kind of the signifying event Mm -hmm. of the Mine Wars that everyone kind of realized is this could have ended very differently if things hadn't gone the way they did, so... Yeah, if this isn't if this didn't have the impact that you're about to get into and like the end results, we probably would have had a few more of these situations for sure. Yeah. Despite being such important events in the fight for labor rights in America, events like Ludlow and Blair Mountain are still largely unknown today, and there's reasons for that. I mean, I had no idea about either of these things until I started researching for this episode. Mm. So <laughs> In 1931, a state law in West Virginia regulated textbooks to leave out certain social studies as, such as the Mine Wars. Literally scrub mm. it from the books. <laughs> it's like getting your, pers- your uh, <laughs> this is going personal on- history just dissolved. This is going on your permanent record. Never, no. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wasn't until recent decades that the Mine Wars revived any more attention, but even still, it is only talked about in bits and pieces overshadowed by other media sensations in the area, such as the Hatfields and the McCoys, which, if you're unfamiliar with Mm. that, it's basically two gunslinging families with a heated history together. And a whole lot of yeehaw. (laughs) There's a lot of Wild West yeehaw in that story, and a lot of missing teeth. One of the best, like, History.com shows, though. If you haven't seen it, I highly suggest it. Backyard gin, missing teeth, and guns. What else could you need? I mean, you just need, like, a fiddle, and you have a band. Oh, my. There had to be so many fiddles with haste in the teeth on the front porch. They probably got so sick of the fiddle by the end of that (laughs) whole whole situation. Mine companies still own major parts of Blair Mountain battlefields, and it wasn't until 2015 that a privately funded Mine Wars Museum opened in Matawan. Three years later, a descendant of labor leader Frank Keeney, a central figure at Blair Mountain, succeeded in having Blair Mountain placed on the National Register of Historic Places. So, 
some stuff is going in the favor of defending the history of this place, but a lot of it up until literally like less than a decade ago was like, nobody talk about it. Can we please just forget about this? It just never happened, guys. Yeah. Prove it. <laughs> <laughs> Reenactments done today in the area of Blair Mountain are still met with harassment and criticism from the Cole families in the area. But it is an important reminder that it wasn't easy to change the landscape of work in America. And that fight still continues today, specifically for miners, albeit in different forms. For one example, Appalachian miners have been dealing with the issue of black lung disease for decades. And it's not like Zoolander. Not like I Zoolander, no. black lung paw. It is an actual serious <laughs> disease. Yes, this is literally <laughs> killing people in America yeah. by, the, by the tens of people. So it's not like it's a, a minor thing. <laughs> but despite more and more black lung cases, it is becoming harder for these miners to claim health benefits and receive care. In, in Kentucky, for example, new legislation has limited what kind of medical evidence is being allowed in court, making it more difficult to submit a worthwhile case. And in Alabama, miners took big cuts to pay, healthcare benefits, and time off in 2016 because Warrior Met Cole faced bankruptcy. The medical evidence thing is kind of bewildering. Like, what do you mean you can't submit all medical evidence? I, I literally don't know how you can pass a legislation saying you just cannot present something. Right. It's like he coughed up an actual piece of coal on the stand. Nope, can't count it. <laughs> it's like that would be like saying, oh, this guy murdered someone, but we're not gonna take any physical evidence. We're just gonna take testimony. Right. Like, you can't submit the gun. Yeah. <laughs> how is that a thing? And I don't understand how they're able to get away with this, but I like I said, money can do a lot. Yeah, it's the unfortunate way of things. So even though these events took place over 100 years ago, their message still echoes true today. In a landscape where the rich still control the poor, it's easy to get discouraged. But 10,000 miners in West Virginia proved that the working man can make a change if people combine their efforts and work together. And earlier this year, Chris Smalls, a worker who was fired from Amazon, organized the first ever U.S. Amazon warehouse union through grassroots organizing. This sentiment goes beyond labor movements. It applies to any case, any cause struggling in a fight for fair treatment and equality today. And it doesn't just apply to groups. It applies to individual struggles. So keep fighting when things look bleak. Believe in yourself and what you stand for, even if it means that the odds are against you. Someone out there might be going through the same thing you are, and together we can help one another make this world a better place for everyone. You got this. Mm -hmm. That was nice. And that is the his, a brief history of some of the, the labor uprisings and the fight to get fair treatment in the workplace in America. Right, growing up and just realizing that Labor Day is right around the corner like, and just wondering why is this even a holiday. Yeah, all we did is party and get hammered. Right, it was a big lake day. Yeah, we, celebrate, sure. we celebrated for these people. That's why we were getting drunk, you know? Right, classic America. But, I don't know, I mean, now you just have more background onto why all this matters, because so many, even today, like, so many people are actually dying because of bad labor conditions, or they can't, they just can't afford basic things to live, such as food, shelter, and actually advancing themselves through buying real estate or investments, stuff like that. Yeah, when you have so many marginalized communities, too, that get yeah. stuck into jobs that 
they really have to take because they can't get anything else. So it's it's a struggle still for a lot of people in not just America but around the world. So yeah. I mean, we still have it relatively good compared to some places, but yeah, the fight is still going on. So don't stop fighting for the rights that you deserve out there in the world. <laughs> Absolutely. But I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know it was very enlightening to research some of the background on this stuff because mm-hmm. as as Evan said, I'd never really thought about it. <laughs> like, why is Labor Day a thing? Right. But because Veterans Day is kind of obvious, you know, support the veterans. And yeah. then like Easter and all those are like, oh, yeah, these are the bunny. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Candy. <laughs> Christmas is presents. Yes. Santa Claus. Spooky season is October. Oh, it's coming up. It's coming up. Hey. Speaking of spooky season, oh, yeah. submit your stories to the podcast, people. We got a couple, but we need more if we want to do a whole episode of just your stories. We'll read all the creepy crawlers, please. We don't... love it. It's literally some of my favorite episodes. So if you guys have stories that you want to send in, it can be we have one true crime story that got sent in that's kind of horrifying. Uh, but we can do we can do those. You can do ghost stories. You can do monster stories did bigfoot come and kiss you on the lips when you were sleeping and send in a story i'm sorry for you having to edit those <laughs> blowing a raspberry <laughs> did mothman come suck your toes in the night <laughs> these that, are all stories with that, we want. <laughs> with that bodacious booty of his. <laughs> these are the stories we want to hear but yes, if you if you actually do have stories and you want to send them in send them to our email gems of history podcast at gmail.com and all we ask of you guys is put as many details in there as possible so that we can really kind of get a feel for the situation that you were in and kind of the scenario. Uh, and also just let us know if you want us to use your name. If, we're, if you don't want us to, just say, please withhold my name from when you read this. But we do that for you guys because obviously not everyone wants to have their name attached to some of that stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, just let us know those that one thing and then... Yeah, go crazy. But go nuts. Hope we can hear some cool stories again this year. Can't wait to hear them. It truly is like our favorite favorite episode. I love to it. Do. But Evan, where else can they find us other than the email? They can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. They can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at gems of history podcast. So if you just type that, type that in, we'll pop up. Yeah, and if you want to get in touch with us there, too, if you really want to type out an entire story in a private message on one of those platforms, if it even allows it to go that long, then go for it. But yeah, we'd prefer if you would send them to the email. It just makes it easier to keep them all together for us. But that's all we really got for you guys on this week. Uh, Sorry that we were a week late on Labor Day, but no, sometimes we're just not the best planners. It is what it is. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it's a grassroots organization, you know? <laughs> yes. When do we go on labor strike for our own show? <laughs> when, when we start a Patreon, that's yeah. when we go on labor strike. <laughs> 1v1 me in this labor strike. <laughs> it's just us with like picket fences. Yes. Like but we do have some exciting stuff coming up for you guys in the next couple weeks, and mm-hmm. I'm very excited for that. So you guys can look forward. We're gonna go back to world war ii Ooh. and then we're going back to like the 1600s so a little bit of jump in time but we really are all over the place <laughs> yeah we do a lot here because i mean history's been around for a long time some could say since the beginning that 
would be a good starting point, I'd say. But uh-huh. when is the beginning, Evan? Nobody really knows. That is true. <laughs> that is the problem. Real chicken or the egg there. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but all you people out there, have a wonderful week. And you guys are all great. And if you guys ever need help with anything, don't be afraid to reach out to someone. You know, like I said earlier, we're all in this together. So stay polished, everybody. <laughs>